force of rage and ruin. Welcome, everyone, to Rebel Madman Radio here at Republic Broadcasting Network on the 10th day of February in the year of 2024. And we have a dynamite program for you tonight. And uh, But before we jump into that, and uh, I introduce our most esteemed guest... Uh, along with uh, our good buddy from up there from New Boone, uh, Mr. and Black uh, Jack Mountain, Mr. Uh, what's your name again? Oh, <laughs> just kidding, Frederick. Uh, but uh, anyway, folks, uh, first of all, find a way, if you possibly can, to support RBN. It's one of the few bastions of free speech that's out there and is still available. And go to republicbroadcasting.org and Please donate if you can possibly afford it. But now to jump into today's program, uh, of course, I have my good black ball spook friend, uh, Frederick Blackburn, and we are just blessed with a wonderful guest tonight, an author of several books, especially on the atrocities that occurred during the South during the misnamed civil war i prefer stonewall jackson's our second war for independence is my preferred title but uh, anyway uh frederick uh let's introduce our guest miss karen stokes miss stokes how are you today i'm doing well hope y'all are too well thank you ma'am uh can you give the folks a little bit of uh, your background history and uh how you come to be motivated to put out these wonderful books, and we'll give a list of those books later to the group that's listening. So uh, would you give us a little bit of background, please, ma'am? Well, I have worked over 30 years at a Manuscript Archive in South Carolina. Um, it's uh, We have lots of papers, primary source material from the beginning of the South Carolina colony up to uh, the present century. And um, I work with the manuscripts, and it was my job to catalog them, and so I had to be very familiar with the material and the context of the material. So I read a lot of history and did a lot of research. And um, as I arranged these collections and described them so that they could be cataloged so that people would know what's in there, um, I found that I was most fascinated with the period of the 1860s. And the letters, especially the wartime letters and diaries, were the most compelling material that I ever read. And so I just developed a very um, strong interest in that period of South Carolina history. And um, that's uh, after working with these manuscripts for many years, I started um, writing. Um, my first book was a collection of letters that I co-edited with the director of our uh, manuscript archive, and it was published in 2010. And um, from there on, I started doing other books uh, and articles and uh, newspaper articles and journal articles. And um, that's that's how I got interested in it, and I published 20 books so far, and I have a few more in the pipeline. So, Wow. Wow, that is uh, above and beyond the call of duty, I would say. that. <laughs> but uh, I've read uh, several of your books. I'm uh, currently finishing one up now. And um, I've I just – this is the thing. And also I've read your articles at the Abbeville Institute, which I love those as well. Thank you. And, and the thing I have noticed is uh, you have about the same regard for our modern-day historians as I do. So, uh, uh, and that I think, and we know, and you have that great opportunity to sit there day after day with those original manuscripts, those original documents. Why is it, in your opinion, is it that the modern day historians don't go to those original sources? Well, I mean, a lot of primary source material is not published and it's uh, so you have to go into an archive and read 18th and 19th century letters you know written in cursive which they're no longer even teaching in the schools but um, that's part of it and uh, the things that have been published those are easily accessible like like my book 
that first book of letters. I mean, those letters I trans. It took me a year or two to transcribe all those letters so that they could be put into a, you know, into a book. But um, they, I, I think a lot of historians tend to read other historians, and um, you know, I, and I'm not. I'm not a histor- I'm not a trained historian, but I have learned a lot through working with with the primary source documents and um, and academia today is is very you know politically correct to put it <laughs> politely. <laughs> the lady is polite. Yes, the lady is polite. She didn't say BS. She said politically correct. <laughs> Thank you so much. But uh, uh, Frederick, you have some questions for Ms. Stokes. Oh, I was just going to chime in there rudely. It's like, the show's still early. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, you you are so spot on with the idea of original source documents, history versus historians and academics reading other historians. Instead of reading these people's actual words, you get to hear what somebody else said about those words. And my as Mr. Gaddy will tell you, one of my big pet peeves in all this is the outright, you know, the outlandish and outrageous lying by omission in academia, where we just, you know, we don't, you know, those are hate facts now. We can't put that in because that doesn't, you know, go with our modern agenda. And so these lies by omission throughout history are just, you know, uh, you have to unlearn so much of history when you finally you know decide to go back and read the source documents and realize that you know you were lied about a lot and garbage in garbage out people go to school go to college university and they think they know history and now they have a degree so they now have authority over everyone else that said well my professors at university taught me you know and it's like it's a completely different story when you go back to those actual uh, you know source documents And the big tell is, you know, that our children today, because they are deliberately not learning cursive script, you know, can no longer read the founding documents of their own nation. And that is just outrageous to me, but that's just me. I'm just an old redneck from North Kakalaki. So back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ma'am, uh, what, uh, if you could, uh, tell us, because I know where that uh, tripwire was for me uh, so many years ago, but uh, when you uh, first started with these manuscripts and what have you, what was the first thing that was really, you know, just with kind of the uh, blow across the forehead that uh, something's not right? We're not telling people the truth here. Well, when I first started in this field, I didn't know a lot about the uh, period of the war between the states. Um, I sort of learned it on the job, and I read books to give me context. And a lot of the books I read were earlier works. I mean, if you read books by historians that were writing in the, say, late 19th century up into, say, the 1960s, um, they give you a, uh, a more balanced view and um, so I got a good picture of the period from them. But then when I started reading uh, the, the, the documents, um, they um, frankly just made me mad because I was reading these letters written by ladies or uh, soldiers who were um, victimized, um, like in Colombia. Uh, the burning of Colombia is one of the big war crimes that's never mentioned uh, in a lot of the history books. And so, you know, I was just uh, very um, frustrated. And I I thought, well, these people need to be able to speak for themselves. And so uh, the first uh, book that I wrote on that subject was uh, South Carolina Civilians in Sherman's Path. And it's based on um, the firsthand accounts of these people in South Carolina who were um, victimized by so, uh, Sherman's soldiers when they came through. And um, it had been written about before, but m- books that dealt with it were mainly dealing with the military aspects of it. 
and um, and they would mention you know certain civilian atrocities and everything. But there's just so much of it. I just thought, well, this this needs to be out there, and so I started collecting them and. I, I did that first book, and then I've done other since that deal with uh, <clears throat> Sherman in South Carolina. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, you know, I think that is just absolutely commendable in your pursuit of the truth. Um, Frederick, uh, any questions that you might have? I'm formulating one in my little old noggin here, so uh, I'll let you uh, jump in. Oh, just reading the uh I'm cheating here. I've got your uh, uh, book crypt notes up here from Amazon. And, you know, it's just fascinating that you would write this in 2012. So, you know, what was going on in 20, you know, leading up to 2012 that would give you your aha moment? What was that? Things are not what I've been told. Is it just you know any specific incident or you know how did you come about to kind of question the uncivil war as i call it well that may have been written during the um sesquicentennial of the war um but that really wasn't my motivation it's just that um at that time i had been published that first book that i mentioned and um i felt like that gave me sort of a springboard to to write more books and sort of, you know, the um, credentials. And so um, I started putting together um, accounts from mostly the manuscripts in our collection. And so and that's how that book came about. Um, and uh, there's so much material. <laughs> you know, I could only... The uh, publisher I was working with, they have a they have a uh, format that they want. They don't want a book to be longer than a certain amount, and so you know you could only put so much in that. And so I saved some for you know future books, and I also wrote about you know other um, incidents in South Carolina that took place that were that are very little known, even by people who live here. Um, I wrote a book about the Immortal Six Hundred which was a group of 600 Confederate prisoners of war that were um, brought down to Charleston Harbor and put into a stockade uh, prison on an island in the harbor that was under fire from the Confederate batteries because the the, uh, Union's force had had captured that particular island. And they put these men in there as sort of human shields, and uh, the Confederate artillerists were skilled enough to not to hurt them. They shot over their... Blockade, stockade prison. But um, they were very badly and cruelly treated. And after they were taken off out of Charleston Harbor, they were taken down to Fort Pulaski, Georgia, where they were put onto a starvation regime for for a couple of months. And um, their story is just very shocking. And so I I put that into a book. And uh, most people have never even heard of this story. And so I just wanted it told you know i wanted to i wanted these men's story to be known now there had been other there had been another book on that subject written back in the 90s a a really excellent book by a lady who did just fantastic research but i had come across more material in our collections and i wanted to add that And and her book was somewhat longer and i wanted to make something more uh kind of succinct and uh, a little more readable uh, and the again the publisher i was working with they only want so much in a book uh, they have a, like the format that i mentioned and so that you know that was published also well ma'am if i may one of the things in reading some of your articles as well which i truly enjoy reading uh you have the same disdain that i do for the authors, historians, or what have you, who leave out purposely, I'm sure, the atrocities that were committed against the black folks in the South. It's like it never happened. Uh, And that, to me, when I first saw that, was quite alarming. And then, you know, once uh, I would like for your thoughts on that, and then I would like for you to Tell our folks uh, what you know about 
the contraband camps. I, I don't know of any. I've studied contraband camps, but I don't know of any in South Carolina. You know, there were there were uh, in Tennessee. There were quite a few. They were in uh, different areas. But uh, uh, first of all, uh, would you please speak to the atrocities that were committed against the black folks in, in the South by the Union Army? Well, my my you know area that I've researched the most is South Carolina, so I can speak to that. Um, please do. Uh, in November 1861, which was pretty early in the war, the uh, Union forces captured a city on the coast of uh, South Carolina called Beaufort, and they took over that whole area. There were islands around there. Hilton Head, Hilton Head Island became their uh, southern headquarters in the south, and they were also blockading uh, Charleston Harbor, which was a little further north. And uh, so that part of South Carolina was in Union control from uh, November 1861 until the end of the war. And there are stories of uh, that were, you know, documented by some of the people who um, some some northern school teachers came down um, the school norms. And they wanted to, you know, to try to help and educate the, the black people. And um, some of them in their diaries wrote about how the, the women were being mistreated by the soldiers. And um, they weren't happy about it, of course. And uh, they didn't seem to get pub- uh, punished for it either. Um, so that went on. I wrote about that in my book, Confederate South Carolina. Um, <clears throat> there were contraband camps there but they were uh it was a somewhat different in south carolina because they were you know these people were in the place where they had been you know that was their home that that part of the south carolina was their home and um they tried to help them they tried to educate them and these people who came down from the north the civilians and um they were uh they were fed and treated all right but when they started um, conscripting black men for the army, uh, a lot of the black men in South Carolina that were in that area who did not want to join the army, but they were forced to do so. So you could consider that a form of mistreatment. And they were hunted down and, you know, forced to go into military service. Not all of them, but some of them were forced in. Um, And then when Sherman... uh, decided he was going to make his march across South Carolina. He came in in uh, January 1864, and um, his men were known for mistreating the blacks also in that area, and um, particularly women, um, and there's some, you know, some rather horrible incidents that happened, and they just, you know, they didn't seem to care. And they weren't really punished for it either. And then when Sherman's army marched out of that area, sort of diagonally across the state going northwest, all along the route, they were burning and plundering and they would they stole from the blacks just like the whites. I mean, they, they would go into the blacks, the slave quarters and steal their food and whatever they had and their livestock. And um, whatever little trinkets they might have or, or clothing, and just like they were stealing from the white people, they were burning, you know, just about everything in their path. But first they would plunder the places and um, sometimes they would leave things standing. Sometimes they would leave the, the slave quarters standing, but uh, they were at least plundering from them. And also Sherman's men were known for um, stringing up people to get them to. Uh, divulge where the family valuables were. They would go to a plantation and they would find, let's say, an old white man who lived there or uh, one of the slave men and they would string them up to a, from a tree and hang them and not to death, although sometimes that happened, to get them to, um, to uh, torture them enough to get them to divulge. Well, you know, they buried the family silver in the graveyard or something, you know. So, and then when they uh, got to Columbia, South Carolina, which is kind of in the center of the state, that's the capital of South Carolina, um, there was uh, some very 
there was a, a murder of a black man in Colombia that Sherman was aware of because as soon as it happened, he he was walking down the street with the mayor, and uh, some of his sh- soldiers had just shot a black man, and he asked them why did they do that, and they said, well, he he gave us some lip, to put it politely, he was uh, he was impudent to them, and so they shot him, and he was dead, and and. Uh, Sherman didn't do anything about it. He said, well, we don't have time for court martials and things like that. And he just moved on. And the mayor recorded this later. And um, and then there were uh, William Gilmore Sims, who was a very famous author in South Carolina at that time. He was in Columbia when it was burned. And uh, soon, as soon as they were gone, as soon as the Union forces left, he... Um, he started interviewing people all over the city, gathering their accounts and uh, what happened to them and their experiences. <clears throat> and uh, he recorded, you know, quite a few incidents of black women being raped and and even murdered. So it was. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, of course. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, works called the War of the Rebellion? I think it's yeah, hundred. Yeah, I use those a lot. It, it's in, it's usually referred to as the OR, which is yes abbreviation mm-hmm. for the Official Records of the War of the Rebellion. Yeah, they were right. published in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, and I think even beyond that. I use well, those a lot. Good. I then you are totally familiar. You mentioned the headquarters in Hilton Head. Then you must be familiar with the atrocities that were committed by Major General David Hunter uh, when he actually sent armed men to the plantations and forced the blacks into the Union military and then didn't pay them. Are you familiar with those? Well, I know that that many of the men were forced into military service, yes. Uh, Hunter was there part of that time and... uh, he was all for that. He allowed it. Um, as for their pay, I'm not sure. I, I, I think that they did not get paid as much as the white soldiers, and that later on that caused some, uh, you know, disgruntlement, and there was some, you know, mutinies about it. But uh, I think they, I think they were paid, it, you know, once they enlisted. Well, the a- the actual uh, OR, as we mentioned before has a really specific uh, point in there that some of the men who were originally seized, you know, with the black women running along behind them, crying and begging for them not to take their men, that many of them were uh, actually brought back uh, several months later to the plantations, but were never paid. Oh, well. I mean, if if they didn't stay in the army, that I guess that could be possible. But I'm not familiar with that particular incident. Sure. Okay. Uh, Blackbird, uh, questions, please, or comments. <clears throat> oh, just observations that as I'm relearning the uncivil war and the tactics that were actually used against the not only the southern soldiers but the southern civilians and the black slaves that they were supposedly, you know, doing this for the benefit of, right, for you believe, like the uh, experts at Appalachian State University, for example, this was all about slavery. Uh, But that, you know, you're dealing with a model of warfare, of total warfare. You know, this is just to wipe out a population and completely break it, right, and starve them to death. And you know, I just keep seeing parallels between the U.S. uncivil war and things like the later Holodomor in the Ukraine, the Armenian genocide, you know, uh, how German POWs were treated after the war in the Eisenhower, you know, Rhine Meadow camps, etc. And so you just see the same absolute warfare tactic being played out and the people fighting against it are still trying to play by some type of 
rules of warfare that you know somehow we could have an ethical warfare and they're fighting one tactic against an an adversary that has no such morality that their whole thing is you know you kill everyone everything you burn it all to the ground and then we just rebuild it out of the ashes i mean have you ever thought about different uh, i don't know if you had research in other war theaters and what your uh observations were there well i'm i'm sure there are war crimes in every war um my concentration of course is the war between the states um and you know i don't know that much about the war crimes of world war ii and and things like that so i really couldn't comment on that i'm sorry all right thank you well, that's certainly okay. Uh, you know, it's a crazy thing about us blackballed spooks. We, uh, uh, you know, we we try to correlate things because that's how we were trained. If it happens just here, see it's going to happen. Those patterns there. everywhere. <laughs> those, those hate patterns. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, darn that training anyway. But uh, what uh, you know, I'm really enjoying this South Carolina in 1865. Before we come to the break. Could you kind of give the people a little background on your reason for writing South Carolina in 1865, please, ma'am? Well, I just we just have such a rich collection that I work with. I mean, I'm still working there uh, at, at that manuscript collection. And I come across things here and there that, you know, I, I had not been aware of before. And I just wanted to... Uh, Add those to a book. That book that you're mentioning, South Carolina 1865, has a chapter on the burning of Columbia. I'm sure you're aware of that. Yes, ma'am. But, but yeah, I just there's just so much that I find, and uh, some of the things there in South Carolina in 1865 that were mentioned in my first book, South Carolina Civilians in Sherman's Path, are dealt with in more depth. I might have maybe had a, a page or two about what happened to, say, the Middleton ladies in Columbia. Well, in South Carolina 1865, I, I uh, include a lot more of their story. So I wanted to expand on some things. And so, uh, and I also came across new uh, manuscripts in our collection. Well, they're new in the sense that they were sort of undiscovered and um I wanted to include those. I, you know, these things haven't been told before. Uh, well, ma'am, I think you have done one heck of a job, as we would say here in Middle Georgia. You, you have knocked it out. And as we talked before, we're almost at break time. Okay. But uh, you, uh, you know, you mentioned you were originally from Georgia and you moved to South Carolina. Right. Uh, in our conversation, and uh, I, th I thought that was quite interesting. And you actually said something about the Confederate Museum in Charleston, and I would like for you to tell the folks a little bit about that when we come back from the break, if you would, please. Okay, sure will. All right, here it comes, folks. Uh, we'll be back on the other side. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. What would you say if I told you we have a new tool that will increase production and lower maintenance costs for your meat processing company, and it would pay for itself in just six weeks? When pigs fly! The new Ease-Off Model EZ4 replaces old spring-style carcass droppers and is faster, safer, and more reliable. The Ease-Off lowers or lifts 1,000 pounds to or from your rail automatically using our remote control. Sounds expensive. Can I afford it? Can you afford not to try the Ease-Off? 
It installs fast with just three bolts in place of your current dropper. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue and injuries, speed up your line, eliminate downtime, and increase profit. How can I order my EaseOff? Go to EaseOff.com, E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com. And hurry, because we are offering $200 off on the new Easy 4 for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC. Summersville, Missouri. 417-932-6419. Charles de Gaulle once said, actually, it's difficult to envision in this regard any other criterion, any other standard than gold. Yes, gold, which does not change in nature, which can be made into either bars, ingots, or coins, which has no nationality, and which is considered in all places and all times the immutable and judiciary value par excellence. So when the question is, why gold? It's simple, my friends. The answer to that question is simply, why not? Like it or not, precious metals will always be the world's reserve currency, even though nations do not define their currency by their worth and say gold. Individuals still buy gold and silver to protect themselves from inflation. The more money a nation's central bank pours into the economy, the less value its currency, the dollar is, which means the price of everything else rises. $21 up for a bag of dog food, seeing that the dollar is cheap. That's why the cost of everything goes up. It's because the buying power, the value of the dollar is tanked. It's worth nothing. And the gold that your family would have owned in 1907 will buy at least the same amount of goods, if not far more. William McPhee once stated, it's extraordinary how many emotional storms one may weather in safety if one is ballasted with ever so little gold. The truth about money, gold versus cash in a crisis. Gold, a valuable thing to store. The power of gold in times of crisis. Historical sketch of paper currency. Oh, and beware the Ides of Rare Coin Dealers and Alan Greenspan's speech on gold and economic freedom. How interesting. I'm going to give you gold and silver in five easy lessons. Seeking out the most efficient and most secure route to owning gold and converting it into widely accepted currency is the next best thing to enjoying gold-backed currency, my friends. In a world of central bankers hell-bent on devaluing our savings, you need to own private gold standard. Contact me, Jeffrey Bennett at Kettle Moraine Limited, by calling our phone number at 602-799-8214. That's 602-799-8214. stand up for the truth regardless of the consequences and I will always do that and Aaron Tippin probably said that as about as well as anyone could say I actually asked him one time did you write that song about me and he said no I don't even know who you are but anyway (laughs) moving away from that uh, Blackbird 9 you and I had a friend that we uh knew uh you know quite well from just our associations i don't think i i never met him face to face i'm not sure if you did but this past week america lost a true patriot and his name was john kaminsky now there's things john and i didn't agree on and that's fine because we're human beings but our purpose was the same regardless of the path taken so uh blackbird i would like for you to jump in on that if you would please sir Oh, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I found out John Kaminsky had passed uh, on the 5th of February. And, you know, he was 
uh, one of our first uh, Pathfinders on the Breakfast Club back when I was doing the Breakfast Club show. He came on. Uh, he's been a guest on my Snack Shack show several times. I've been, you know, uh, worked with him. But, you know, after 9-11, and those of us who were trying to tell the truth about 9-11, you know, we were all silenced, and we couldn't get our foot in the door anywhere. We were, our local papers, our regional papers, state papers, you know, radio station, television station, no one would listen to us. And I'm like, you know, I was backstage, you know, I was still doing politics at the time, you know, and I'm like this, you know, there's a lot more going on that we're not allowed to talk about. And one of the things that's crazy about you know crazy making is when everybody's telling the same lie but you know that it's a lie that you know, the building seven for example the magic cell phone calls and it's crazy making when you can't get anyone to see the truth that you're seeing and with John Kaminsky, you know, he was a um, you know big league journalist who was still just. It reminds me a lot of uh, Sancha McRae and her work. But you know, they were professional journalists and just doing stories like they used to. And suddenly they were getting their lives destroyed because they were printing the truth. And you know, Kaminsky just would not back down, and he became one of the vanguards of the new media. Of of the internet and uh it was you know trying to follow kaminsky's work because they would slap it down just as soon as he could post it up <laughs> you know he had more sites you know showing than i've had and but he would keep putting out material and you know so he was that kind of person that's like yes somebody else sees what i'm seeing and so i owe him such a you know gratitude uh debt of gratitude uh but you know same time we had our differences not only about you know various aspects but uh uh i don't know if you <laughs> caught the one of the last pieces he did right after christmas and i think i was maybe the uh, cause of it is I dared to wish John Kaminsky a Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and oh, that was pretty. He didn't mention me by name, but uh, that was kind of a funny. It's like okay, didn't quite see that one coming, but okay, we can go that anyway. You know, Happy New Year, then, John. But uh, he will be missed. Oh, big time! And uh, John and I did a program for about three months together called the KGB. And that was the Kaminsky Getty Brain Trust. And I certainly enjoyed those times together. And yes, we had a falling out, uh, a philosophical falling out. But uh, afterwards, you know, we uh, communicated on multiple occasions, phone calls, emails, what have you. And I always had the greatest respect for John. And uh, especially, as you mentioned earlier, what an eloquent writer. I mean, this man was a true wordsmith. And he, he was just really great at what he did. And, you know, uh, it doesn't matter that we had our moments where we didn't agree that I um, didn't agree on things. The important thing is the time where we did and the great work he did. And I just wanted to bring that up today. And I hope uh, Ms. Stokes will uh Permit will not be too upset as us for jumping on there to commemorate uh, the uh, death of our uh, a very good friend, and of course he got trashed by the same people who trashed me. So <laughs> exact same thing. It's people that were going after Kaminsky were going after you. They're going after me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And those shows you two did. It was like the super groups of the seventies, right? Remember when they put together the super groups? You know, and they put out that one album that was just every song was perfect. And then they were getting a fight and blow up, and you never heard from them again, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it works, man. Those those shows, man, those were epic. Y'all really did a great job there, so tip of the hat for that. Human nature, and now, Ms. Stokes, uh, she did permit me to call her Karen, so I appreciate that. And so, uh, Karen, would you kind of go through a list of the works that you have done? Because... Our listeners need to know, because they're probably not going to hear about this anyplace except shows like this one. So would you go through your books and tell the folks your motivation for each one and how you feel about each one of them? Uh, Is that 
uh, kind of a heavy task, or are you up for it? Well, uh, I'll try to go through them and be as brief as possible. Um, the first brief, book, bre- brevity is not necessary, uh-huh. ma'am. Okay. Well, right. The first book, which I think I mentioned before, was a collection of letters written by a Confederate officer and chaplain. Um, my motivation for that was when, when we got these letters back in 2005, uh, and I started reading them so that I could catalog them, I was just so impressed by the letter writer. He was, I said, who is this man? After I read through a few of his letters, he was brilliant and uh, very devout. And I just, I, I had no knowledge about this person beforehand, so I did a little research and I found out that he was, in, in later life, he was a very famous theologian of the Episcopal Church. And um, uh, he, his name was William Pache DuBose, and his wartime letters, and there were a lot of them, had been preserved by the family, and um, but they had sort of been forgotten. They had been kind of put away into a, a library in Charleston for many, many, you know, 150 years. And uh, it was only when a new person who start, started working there realized that those letters didn't need to be at that library. They needed to be in a manuscript archive, so they were transferred to us. And so I'm the person who kind of agitated for, you know, getting these published. And I was allowed to transcribe them on company time and co-edit them with uh, with the director there. And so that was published in 2010. And uh, I think, you know, his, his, his letters were just so, so beautifully written, so eloquent. He served in many different theaters of the war and he was in, in he became a chaplain uh, and for um, Kershaw's brigade and uh, he survived the war but uh, he a lot of the letters were written to his uh, fiance and then his wife she, they married during the war uh, the next book that I did as a co-editor was another collection of letters called a Confederate Englishman and that is a collection of letters that are that are in our archive, uh, written by a gentleman named Henry Weems Fielden. He was the son of a an English baronet, and he was in the British Army. And he decided to run the blockade in 1863 and come to uh, the South and join the Confederate Army. And he served in Charleston uh, on General Beauregard's staff. And so we have his letters, and so. You know, I did the same thing, transcribed those, and we published those. He married a South Carolina lady, and after the war, they went back to England because it was, you know, he, they were economically devastated here in, in South Carolina. And uh, he rejoined the British Army, and later he became a rather uh, noted naturalist and an Arctic explorer. So... Um, his, you know, these letters had never been published before, and so I just thought he's such an interesting person that that they needed to be in print. Um, the next collection of letters that I did with the same co-editor was called Days of Destruction. Um, it's also a, a, written by a, a soldier in Charleston who was in the Signal Corps, and he was stationed in the steeple of a church in the city with a telescope. And he could look out on Charleston Harbor and see all the naval engagements that were going on there and the shelling. And um, it, he was up there for, you know, many months. And he reported on all that he saw uh, and, the, and the toll that the, the shelling, the Union shelling from one of the islands in the harbor went on. The, the siege of Charleston was the longest siege of the war. It started in uh, the actual shelling of the city started in August 1863 and lasted until February 1865. And they were constantly throwing shells into the city. And he reported on, you know, this or that church has been hit or this or that building or so and so was killed today. And so, you know, his letters are are sort of a goldmine of information about that uh, period of history in Charleston. His name was Augustine T. Smythe. His father was a, a clergyman, uh, uh, and uh, his whole family was very prominent in Charleston. Um, <clears throat> I'm not doing these in in order, but the next set of letters that I published 
I did on my own. And those were the uh, letters of the Haskell family of Abbeville, South Carolina. Um, that was a prominent planter family of that area area who sent seven sons into the Confederate Army, two of whom became uh, colonels and uh, served in the Army of Northern Virginia. Um, one of them was uh, killed at Gettysburg. One was killed on Morris Island in, in Charleston Harbor. Uh, but they were all very well-educated, very eloquent writers of letters. And, and their, um, one of the letters in the collection was, was characterized by a famous uh, historian as the most beautiful letter of the war ever written during the war. Douglas Southall Freeman, who wrote Pulitzer Prize-winning biographies of George Washington and uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, was very interested in the Haskell um, family because Has the Haskells were under his command, under Lee's command, and um, the letter that uh, Alex Has Alec Haskell wrote home to his mother about his wife's death um, was is just very it's just beautiful and moving and but the whole the whole story of that family is um, is really interesting. So uh, that's called an everlasting circle, uh, letters of the Haskell family of Abbeville. Um, in the midst of working on those, I also was writing some historical fiction. Um, I wrote uh, a book called Honor in the Dust, uh, and that's a novel set in early post-war South Carolina. And then I also wrote a book called The Immortals. It's a novel that retells the story of the Immortal 600 those POWs that I mentioned earlier. Um, and it also has uh, the story of the burning of Columbia in it. Some of the characters are deal have to deal with that. So um, I just, and I dedicated that book to William Frechet DuBose. And one of the characters is actually based on him. Uh, let's see, I've, I've, uh, I've mentioned The Immortal 600, which is a nonfiction book. And uh, I also published a book of love letters in our collection called Carolina Love Letters and uh, a, a novella called um, Bells, which is a, a love story about a South Carolina family who, was, who refugeed to North Carolina during the war in Flat Rock, North Carolina. Um, the... We've already mentioned the South Carolina book about Sherman and South Carolina in 1865, which is uh, my latest book with that publisher. Um, I also wrote a book called Confederate South Carolina, which is one of my favorites. And it deals with different s stories about things that took place and the people's stories during, um, during the war in South Carolina. And I have a chapter in there about what really happened at Fort Sumter. And uh, I think... That was a story that needed to be told, too, because uh, if you open a history book these days, it makes it sound like the, um, the hot-headed Southerners just fired on that fort for no reason and started a war, which is not, which is not what happened, of course. Totally untrue. And uh, I also I started publishing books with Shotwell, which is an independent uh, publisher in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, if y'all haven't checked out their website, you should. They've published a lot of good books. They're, um, uh, I think their motto is uh, unapolog unapologetically Southern. So uh, they don't. Love that. Uh, so you might want to check out Shotwell in Columbia. And they published my book called A Legion of Devils. And that's more uh, about Sherman, more stuff that I found. <laughs> And um, it's got a great cover, too. And I, they also published recently a book called The Burning of Columbia, South Carolina, which is a short book. And it's the memoir of a Columbia physician who was there and uh, wrote about what happened to him. And also he was very upset about things that were written just after the war by like particularly one of Sherman's generals named Nichols. Uh, I may, uh, officers, I should say, named uh, Nichols, who, you know, generated some falsehoods. And uh, so this 
Columbia physician who wanted to rebut him and set him straight about the burning of Columbia. One of the things that Nichols said was that that, that, that none of the Sherman soldiers ever harmed or insulted a woman in South Carolina, <laughs> which was laughable, of course. Um, so that's with Shotwell. And uh, I've also uh, contributed uh, to a book that was published by um, the Society of Independent Southern Historians, and it's called Understanding the War Between the States. And it's sort of a textbook-like um, book that, that you can find online. And I, I think it comes up when you put my name in Google, too. Uh, but it's, it's, it's meant for students, and it deals with all different aspects of the war. And I contributed two chapters to that, one about the treatment of the prisoners of war and also the one about... Um, Sherman and the war crimes against civilians. So. Um, the latest book that I did was for the Confederate Museum in Charleston. Um, I've been volunteering there, and um, they have. They also have a manuscript collection, and um, I discovered uh, the writings of a lady um, whose name was Mrs. Jane Chichester, which is an interesting name, and uh, her husband was in charge of a small fort in Charleston Harbor called Castle Pinckney. And also, he was the chief of artillery at Battery Wagner on Morris Island, which was a very important uh, defensive fortification in Charleston Harbor. And uh, she wrote a memoir, and so we decided, well, we're gonna, we are gonna. had the manuscripts of it and her, her little pamphlet, and so we published that, and um, we sell it at the museum sort of to raise funds, but... Uh, uh, I'm working on another book. Oh, and also I, I published with Shotwell a book called Fortunes of War. Uh, it's been it, it took a long time to get this published because the book was originally published in Germany in 1879. It was a memoir of a, a young German who immigrated to South Carolina in 1859 and of course got caught up in the war. And he um became involved in blockade running business in Charleston. And uh, his business took him to Columbia, and unfortunately he was there when Sherman was there. So he's got a few chapters in his book about his experiences there, and those are pretty hair-raising. So, uh, But I uh, found uh, a historian friend of mine found a German scholar, and uh, this gentleman, Robert Peters, uh, who lives in Louisiana, it took him several years to do the um, to do the uh, translation of the book, partly because he was having some bad health. But when it finally got translated, Shotwell, I, I edited it for Shotwell and wrote an introduction. And so that book has been was published uh, a year or two ago, and that's the first time that it's been published in its entirety in English. And so it's you know like a sort of like a new source on the war, uh, written. It was originally published in 1879 in Germany, like I said, but I don't think it, much attention was paid to it. Uh, the the author, whose pen name was August Conrad, he wrote about in his book that the Germans did not support the South during the war between the states. They were more on the side of the, the Union. And uh, the United States raised a lot of money off the German states before it was unified as Germany. And they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the war uh, through selling war bonds there in the German states. And they, they bought them up. And um, uh, I have another book coming out by Shotwell. It should be out possibly next month. And that's called A Confederate in Paris. And it's from a collection of letters. And in the collection in the of the society where I work, and they were written by a Confederate diplomat named Ambrose Dudley Mann. He was one of the first diplomats sent abroad by Jefferson Davis, and Jefferson Davis was his very close friend. Jefferson Davis's wife said that she, that her husband and Dudley Mann were like David and Jonathan. They loved each other till extreme old age. She said, and uh, man was wow. sent. He he was sent abroad to get 
recognition for the Confederate States from the great European powers, Great Britain, France, etc. And he it was in Belgium, too, trying to get the uh, endorsement of King Leopold and, and others. And uh, But after the war, he was so embittered by the outcome of the war, he stayed in France. He never came back to, to, to America. And uh, so the, these are his letters that were written from 1867 up until about 1879. And they've never been published before, so because they were just given to us by uh, a descendant of the person to whom the letters were written, and they they've just been virtually unknown until now. So um, that's the kind of stuff I like. I like to bring new stuff to light. Uh, well, ma'am, let me let me uh, say this for sure, and that is every true Confederate out there ought to have all your books because you are producing the truths of history and all we have been you know covered with with like a titanic wave is the lies of modern day historians and what is taught in what i refer to as the public fool system so before we hit before before we hit that break uh, there uh, uh blackbird nine your uh, comments sir I'm sitting here trying to figure out how I can do my budget so I can order these <laughs> it's like, well, what? and find the time to read them. But this is just fascinating, and I can't wait. Are you going to be able to stay on this uh, for the next hour? I wasn't sure exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay, great. Great. Uh, I didn't know what y'all had worked out. So, uh, but whatever, yeah, I just. Whatever you had planned, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, this. You know, and again, the source documents of what really happened versus this new history of what is being taught. And as Mr. Gaddy was joking, I go round and round with our local university here, Appalachian State University Teachers College, which (laughs) has basically been invaded by this, you know, slime mold mind virus of we've got to basically rewrite all history. And that's what's now going to be taught in the public schools because, you know, Appalachian State University supplies many of the school teachers for the public school systems in this Appalachian region. and it's just maddening to hear these young students, you know, saying, well, the reason for the Civil War was slavery, and it's all because South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter. And, you know, it's just like, okay, how do you even start with this? So, but, uh, yes, so I'm lo- looking forward to uh, pursuing your work. Well, thank you. Well, I think, uh, I think the way we start with uh, exposing these lies is with the work of these people who have the courage like Ms. Stokes. Well, here comes the break, folks. We'll be back on the other side. Freebird! who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs. For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. HempPaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at RepublicBroadcasting.org and visit HempPaste.com slash RBN. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.